Hello, my name is Ruby Philp, and this is my critical intergenerational personal education history podcast. The point of this podcast is to research and learn about my familial history and how it has impacted me and my family. I will be going a little further than that by looking at how my family's experiences were different than those who were living in the very same area at the same time. My hope is that understanding the privileges that my family has had through generations will help me deeper understand why I have the privileges that I do. It can be very damaging to communities when people don't examine the historical reasons why they are treated better than others, because people start to assume that they deserve better treatment, even though they did nothing special. I was inspired by the class reading titled Critical Family History by Christine Sleater. She says, quote, If you ask what other sociocultural groups were in the vicinity of an ancestral family and what the power relationships were among groups, you begin to situate your own family story within larger and sometimes conflicting conversations, end quote. I chose to explore and learn about my mother's side of the family because my ancestors on her side came to America all the way back in the 18th century. I felt that it would be very interesting to research their experiences in America. My father's parents came to the U.S. from Australia in the 20th century. I considered researching how my family in Australia had interacted with the Aborigines. However, I could find very few family records, and my grandfather was not available for an interview. I was very lucky while doing this project, because my maternal grandfather has spent his entire life researching his genealogy. I was able to access all of his research for this project, which was super helpful and very interesting. I will start by examining how my family came to America and what their life was like when they arrived. My earliest recorded ancestor was Johann Jakob Frank. He was born in 1714 and raised in southern Germany. The manifest for a ship called the Friendship has his age at the time of his crossing at 25 years old. Starting in 1727, ships began keeping very detailed records of the German immigrants because Benjamin Franklin was becoming increasingly worried about the large numbers of German immigrants that were coming to America. Franklin made it clear that he would never allow the official language of Pennsylvania to become German. To try to control the immigrants, he created an oath that male German immigrants over the age of 16 had to sign. This oath was an attempt to make all immigrants agree to abide by the rules and sever ties to their home countries by pledging their allegiance to England, 
because at this point in time, Pennsylvania was still a British colony. There are no specific records stating why Jakob left Germany to come to America, but many emigrants were leaving Germany at this time due to the economic hardships and the religious persecutions that were caused by the Thirty Year War. Records show that Jakob arrived in Philadelphia in 1739 as an indentured servant. This was not uncommon. Around half to two-thirds of the immigrants who came to America arrived as indentured servants. They typically worked for four to seven years in return for their passage and their room and board during that time. Life was not easy for indentured servants, but they had rights that were not given to slaves. In 1740, Jakob married another German immigrant named Anna Maria. She was born in a village right outside of the town where Jakob was born. She came to America in the same year as Jakob, but there is no way to be certain that they knew each other before they arrived in Philadelphia. Ships did not keep records of their women and children passengers, so there's no way to know if they even took the same ship to America. It's highly likely, though, that they already knew each other. Together, they had four children while they were living in Philadelphia. Pennsylvania was founded by William Penn, a Quaker who preached religious tolerance because he had been persecuted for his faith. It is also said that he believed very strongly that Native Americans should be treated fairly. Because of this, he paid them very well for the land that is now Pennsylvania. However, in later years after Penn had died, the relations between the colonizers and the Native Americans became very tense and hostile. A place that used to preach religious freedom had Baptists and ministers stating that driving out and killing Native Americans was punishment for their religious sins. This was the climate in Pennsylvania while Jacob and Anna Maria were living there and raising their children. In 1737, the Walking Treaty was signed. This treaty was agreed upon by both the Delaware tribe and the colonizers. However, the Delaware tribe was tricked out of much more land than they had agreed to. This is the land that my ancestors lived and farmed on. In 1755, the whole family moved to Lancaster, which was a county in Pennsylvania. They moved there to farm because land in Philadelphia was becoming increasingly expensive as more people moved there. Lancaster had a reputation as the finest agricultural land east of the Mississippi River and the best non-irrigated farmland in the nation. So it is no surprise that people started to move there to farm. I, however, feel that it is very important to state that the first farmers of this land were the Native Americans. Many different tribes had been farming this land for thousands of years before colonizers decided that they wanted to farm there. 
1763, life for the Konstaga tribe reached an intense low. There were only 20 of them left, and they were living in Konstaga town, which was a tribal village located in Lancaster County. They were extremely impoverished because they had been squeezed onto a couple hundred, hundred acres that were completely surrounded by farmland. They were running out of food because farmers had hunted so many of the animals in the forest. As winter approached, the few remaining members of the tribe asked John Penn, who was a descendant of William Penn, to, quote, consider our distressed situation and grant our women and children some clothing to cover them this winter, end quote. They reminded him that they had always been loyal to Pennsylvania, and they deserved this consideration. Their plea was heard, and the people pledged to protect the Constaga people, because they saw it as an opportunity to show hostile Native Americans that peaceful Native Americans could thrive among English settlers. But, less than two weeks after the Constaga asked for help, a group of locals murdered six members of the tribe in Constoga town. Then, another two weeks later, the last 14 were murdered in the Lancaster workhouse where they had been taken for their protection. There are no records to say whether or not my ancestors contributed to this horrible crime, but this was their county and they were living in a climate where people felt it was acceptable to murder the last 20 men, women, and children of the Konstaga tribe in that area. I am now going to jump ahead four generations to George Martin Frank, who was born in Harrisburg, Pennsylvania in 1846, but then moved to Peoria, Illinois, when he was four years old. This is where he met his wife, Sarah Ann Griggs. They were married in Peoria when George was 22. There is a section of my grandfather's research, research that is some sort of clipping of a bibliographical account of Sarah Griggs' father and grandfather's lives. This is a very interesting piece of information because it was written in 1890, and the rhetoric shows how certain topics were viewed at this time. In one section of the piece, they are talking about how Peoria grew and developed. Quote, They took part in the labors by which central Illinois was made to blossom like a rose and was developed from its primitive condition into a great wealthy region. End quote. The way that Native Americans were viewed is very obvious in this piece of writing. The Peoria tribe inhibited this area long before settlers came. They were living there peacefully, and then my ancestors, along with many others, forced them off of their land and justified their actions by calling the Peoria peoples primitive. 
Another section of this piece says, quote, They came west in 1830. Chicago at that time was nothing but an Indian camp, and the savages were employed to take the travelers across the rivers, end quote. This section shows that there were already a nation of people inhibiting the area that they wanted to settle. The Peoria tribe was helpful and nonviolent towards the settlers, and my ancestors helped kick them off of their land even though they had no right to. By all accounts, it seems as though George Frank had a very nice and peaceful life. He was married to Sarah Griggs in 1868 and rented a farm that was next to his parents until 1883 when he, his wife, and their five children moved to another farm. He was a part of the Methodist Church, and when there was no farming work, he was able to find odd jobs where he could use his team of horses and a wagon. I was interested in looking at my family history during this time, because George was alive while there was still slavery in America, and he was alive during the time of the Jim Crow laws. For those who are unfamiliar with Jim Crow laws, they are any of the laws that enforced racial segregation. Many people believe that this was only happening in the South, but in fact, these laws were cropping up everywhere. The biggest Jim Crow law in Illinois was housing segregation. It wasn't until the mid-20th century that the U.S. Supreme Court ruled that housing segregation was unconstitutional. Because of the Jim Crow laws, there were many African Americans in Peoria who were not having as nice of a time as George Frank. In 1870, around the time when George Frank got married, there were only 130 African Americans living in Peoria, where at the time there was a population of almost 23,000 people. According to records that I found, even though the population of African Americans in Peoria was small, they had a very vital community, which was mostly centered around their black Methodist church. It was that same year, 1870, that a group of African American citizens asked if their children could go to the public schools. They pointed out that they were, quote, citizens, voters, and taxpayers. They stated that the distance to the colored school and its limited and inferior system was a hardship upon the children and deprived them of their rights as citizens, end quote. This group was heard and the schools were integrated. This was a big step towards fixing some of the historical debt that is talked about in our class reading, which is titled, From the Achievement Gap to the Educational Debt, Understanding Achievement in U.S. Schools. The author, Gloria Ladson Billings, states that, quote, In the case of African Americans, education was initially forbidden during the period of enslavement. After emancipation, we saw the development of the Freedmen schools, whose main purpose was the maintenance of a servant class. 
during the long period of legal apartheid, she means segregation, African Americans attended schools where they received cast-off textbooks and materials from white schools, end quote. She points all of this out because many people fault African Americans for the achievement gap between them and white students. But all of these periods in history show that African American students have been held back from the opportunity to overthrow the unjust system that is in place. Unfortunately, integrating the schools doesn't make any huge structural changes. Racism was still very deeply woven into the fabric of Peoria. Public places, including restaurants, hotels, beaches, and many other things, were still segregated. And African Americans living in Peoria were only hired in professions that required very little skill and had few to no opportunities for advancement. None of this was mentioned in our family records because this was not the side of Peoria that George and his family experienced. I was interested to see how Peoria had changed since the time of my great-great-great-grandpa. I was extremely disappointed to see that it was still split among racial lines. Here are a few examples that I found in an article titled, Segregated in the Heartlands. According to this article, Peoria has the sixth highest residential segregation of all metro areas in the country. Peoria, along with many other areas of Illinois, is experiencing white flight. This means that white families are leaving these areas, usually due to a high presence of people of color. This means that schools are losing a large number of white students. Even though segregation technically ended in 1954 due to the Brown versus Board of Education court case, and schools in Peoria were integrated all the way back in 1870, an analysis of federal data found that the Peoria metro area has the most segregated schools in the entire country. There are also major differences between the incomes of white households and African-American households. And the most recent census shows that Peoria has the highest poverty rate for African-Americans of any of the large cities in Illinois. After reading all of these, I was curious what my grandpa remembered about the racial inequalities in his hometown of Carbondale, Illinois. He said, When I, uh, I grew up in uh, the late 40s and I graduated from high school in 1956, so that's the era we're talking about. Uh, we had um, just a few uh, black families in Canton, and uh, they we had a large um, international harvester plant that made farm equipment, and almost everyone in the town worked there, as did these people. But there was a uh, a person I knew very well. His name was Delbert Coleman, 
And Delbert Coleman was an African-American and an extremely good athlete. And um, everybody, as far as I know, he was a year older than I. He was in my brother's class. Um, not that he ran around with my brother, but uh, as far as I could see, there was no discrimination or anything, at least in the high school. He was actually um, senior class president for that class. He went on to um, be in the University of Illinois. He played basketball there and was a very successful person. And so um, I'll tell you the truth. When I was growing up, it just absolutely didn't uh, enter into it. I had I had uh, uh, an aunt and uncle who lived in Chicago, and they were, you know, I would say pretty um, against blacks, against Jews. <laughs> you know what I mean? They yeah. were they were not what you'd call uh, sophisticated people, and uh, but and they would always talk about them, you know, and the N word and everything. But uh, as far as our town was concerned. There, there probably was, but I just was not aware of it, nor, you know, and Delmer was actually, I was a good friend, you know, a, a good acquaintance of mine. And, uh, you know, so that was, that was that part. Then we fast forward to about five years ago, and um, there was a reunion of my brother's class of which I went up with, I took him up there. He flew in from, from California and Delbert was there, but it wasn't a night that I was with my brother and every evidently, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) evidently one of the, one of Delbert's classmates whom I also knew, who was kind of a 'er ne'er-do-well, they got in a fist fight. Oh, no. You know, I mean, Delbert was not that kind of guy, but he, this guy must have been really taunting him or something. I don't know. So if it was, it, it evidently was at our school, and I just wasn't aware of it. Hmm. But, uh, yeah, they, they got into a real fight. You know, of course, everybody, um, according to my brother, the way he talked, took Delbert's side. The other guy was totally out of line and, left you know after that happened but uh so you know to say it doesn't exist is crazy Mm -hmm. but canton was pretty docile in that regard and it was also the times you know in the 40s and 50s everyone had jobs and these were nice people you know the families and so forth there was no little section of canton where they all lived or anything and uh, so, but I don't know what their social life was like or any of that kind of stuff. Mm. But, but you know, if I had to bet, I would bet that they had some issues. All of these examples show how far Peoria, the rest of Illinois, and frankly, the United States still has to go in the fight for racial equality. I see these types of inequalities all the time in the area where I live. My neighborhood is called West Seattle. 
The further south you drive, the houses start getting smaller, and when you drive past the target, you know you have reached White Center, because you see graffiti on buildings and boarded up windows. If you look at the different white versus black demographics for each neighborhood, you see that White Center's population is made up of 47% white people and 9% black people. In West Seattle, the population is made up of 83% white people and 1.9% black people. Obviously, there are other racial groups, but I'm just focusing on these two for the purpose of my podcast. It is important to recognize that Washington State, all by itself, is a very white state. 77% of the population in Washington is white, and 3% of the population is black. But, when you look at West Seattle and White Center side by side, the economic disparity is blatantly connected to the racial disparity. I found a quote that is important for everyone to understand. It is in our class reading that is titled, How to Engage Constructively in Courses that Take a Critical Social Justice Approach. One of the sections says, quote, Society is constructed in ways that make us all complicit in systems of inequality, end quote. I feel like this is an important message for everyone to hear and fully understand. To me, it feels like a challenge because it makes me want to prove this reading wrong by actively fighting against systems that oppress whole groups of people. This may seem like a strange quote to put at the end of my podcast, but I want people to hear it and apply it to everything else that I've said. Critically understanding our family's history is so important because it can help us understand how we got to our place in society and how we can actively make changes to the social system that has been oppressing groups in America for hundreds of years. Thank you very much for tuning in and listening to my podcast. Have a wonderful rest of your day.